Good morning, everyone. Welcome back to another Monday edition of our live devotional, both on Facebook Live and also on whatever podcast app or podcast place you get your podcast, be that uh, Apple or Google or Spotify. We're, uh, we're so glad you are here with us this morning. Um, just a by way of announcement, uh, we will not have a live devotional next Monday. Uh, my Me and my family are able to get away for the weekend. Stephen Kassoon is going to be preaching at Sovereign Hope, and so we are able to head off um, for a little bit of uh, some R&R, which means, uh, yes, to those who are watching on Facebook right now, um, and those who were uh, aware yesterday when I preached, I do have something growing on my lip right now. Uh, I'm trying to give uh, a mustache a go. Uh, I don't know why. My wife doesn't know why either, but I can't grow facial hair uh, on the places where facial hair looks socially respectable. But for some reason, my lip um, is the most robust follicle growing ground on my face. And so uh, we made it through kind of the awkward stage in front of church yesterday. And uh, now I get to see where I can take it in, you know, 10 days. So uh, if I come back looking... Uh, clean shaven, it's because my wife has won and I prioritize uh, kissing my wife more than I do growing nasty things on my face. So um, that was completely irrelevant to what we're looking at and doing today in the book of Nehemiah. But I thought if you happen to see this on video and you were wondering if this was by accident or by intention, unfortunately, it is by intention. So uh, we are working through the book of Nehemiah right now. Uh, we've read the whole book in its entirety, working through the F260 Bible reading plan. If you have not, um, if you still haven't picked that up or you're looking for a Bible reading plan, you could do that on our website, um, or you could just Google F260 Bible reading plan. There's some great resources connected with it. And all we're doing, uh, if you if you haven't joined us before, is we're modeling this after what is a simple and attainable morning devotional time. And so most of us don't have an hour to an hour and a half to do a deep dive on scripture in the mornings, and that's fine. Um, we could build those into our uh, Bible reading habits later on. I always say that Bible reading is just like an exercise routine. Some days you are can only get in a, a lighter workout, but it's important to have those deeper, longer, more sustained workout sessions as well. Um, and each of those contribute in different ways to your overall health, and so too with scripture. When you have a balance of uh, devotional readings, you have a balance of Sunday sermon, you have a balance of Bible studies with uh, either on your own or with the help of other believers, all of those help participate uh, or all of those help to create a healthier ecosystem um, of reading God's word. And so uh, we don't want to berate people who only have half an hour to spend in God's word because it's better than spending no time in God's word. And God's word is simple and clear and wonderful where we can glean stuff from it. And so that simple, wonderful gleaning comes when we ask ourselves to look in three places. After looking at the text, we look up. What does this text teach us about God? We look in. What does this teach us about ourselves? Uh, and humanity, and we look out, what does this teach us about the way we live as Christians, church members, um, evangelists, all of those things? How does it tangibly shape the way uh, we live in our world? So we are finishing Nehemiah today, and um, I want to give a quick summary uh, of what we read in Nehemiah 13, if you haven't had the ability to do that yet. Uh, but I want to kind of zoom way out to the history of redemption level, so we kind of have a lay of the land of where we are um, the Israelites uh, went into Egypt. They were brought out of Egypt by God's hand. They were brought into the promised land. Um, 
by Joshua. They established themselves in the promised land. We have the reign of the kings. Um, and then after the kings fell, civil war came and they were ultimately split into two tribes. The tribe of Israel was lost in 722 to Assyria. Um, the southern tribe of Judah, because of their sin, was ultimately taken into captivity in 586 to Babylon. And we've been reading about their life in captivity in Babylon, um, which has kind of morphed over from Babylon to the Medes, and now the capital is in Susa. And during this exile, God's faithfulness has been shown in bringing his people back to Jerusalem. God has not forgot his promises even to his sinful, faithless people. And so we saw this exile come in, this return of the exiles come in three ways. First, um, exile went back to rebuild the temple. Those were those who were sent back to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. And then we see um, Ezra going back and kind of restoring um, the, the reading of the law. Ex more exiles came back with him. And then this third stage of returning exiles come with Nehemiah. And so the temple is built. There are exiles in the land. The, the law of God is being proclaimed. And now the city is rebuilt. The walls of the city have been rebuilt. People have been called back to live in Jerusalem. And so in one sense, there's this great optimism for the people of uh, Israel because they are back in Jerusalem. Um, they have the temple built, they have the walls built, they have people living there. And yet what we're going to read in our remaining time in the Old Testament is even though all of the physical accoutrements of God's promise is there, uh, there is still a void of worship. It is not sufficient for God's people to worship God in a right way. And that is ultimately foreshadowing um, this new covenant, which is going to come, which is where Jesus, the true king of Israel, the true temple of Israel, the one who fulfills the law given to Israel, um, actually uh, restores people not from the outside in, not from the physical nature, but from the internal nature. And so as we continue to read, here we are in Nehemiah, um, and the the, the walls are built, the temple is built, the people are there. But even in this last chapter, we, we run into the insufficiency of right worship from the heart of God's people. And that's because we need more than physical things to help us. We need spiritual regeneration. The law is good. The law is wonderful. The problem is not the law. The problem is our hearts. Our hearts need to be changed. And so that's where we are in this story of redemption. And uh, what happens is... Chapter 13 picks up in kind of a unique timeline spot because uh, Nehemiah has left for a little bit. We read about this in um, verse, uh, where can I find it here? Um, Nehemiah says he was gone. He went back in verse 6. While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king. And after some time, I asked leave of the king. And came to Jerusalem, and then I discovered all of this stuff. And so Nehemiah leaves, right? Things are good while Nehemiah's there. Nehemiah leaves, and things get bad. Worship falls apart. Um, and it falls apart in three specific ways. Uh, first, in verses, uh, in the first third of Nehemiah 13, we see uh, that the people neglected to care for the Levites. And this might sound kind of trivial to us, but the Levites basically um, were the one, they were the priests, they were called to mediate temple worship, they were called to accept the sacrifices, they were called to keep the holy days. And so they really were these mediators of the people before God. And they, in becoming priests, um, gave up all of their jobs, all of their careers, and they were entirely dependent upon God's people to provide offerings, um, and sacrifices uh, for the Levites to live off of. And so if the people failed to offer those sacrifices, 
um, the Levites would have to go back to their fields. They'd have to go back to their old jobs and their old careers, um, which meant no one was there to furnish the temple. There was no one to offer the sacrifices. To not care for the Levites disrupted the worship structure that these people needed. It disrupted God's means of grace of sacrifices. Um, and what's interesting is the Levites are never chastised for leaving. Um, it's never, God doesn't expect them to work in the temple when their needs are not provided for. Instead, he always chastises the people for not providing for the needs of worship in the temple. And so Nehemiah comes and he rebukes those um, who are not giving to the Levites so that right worship might be restored. And we see the return of an old enemy here. Um, part of the reason why there's not right worship, uh, why they're not giving their things, is there's this room where they would offer all of their offerings. And Tobiah the Ammonite, if you remember him, he's one of the guys we learned back in chapter 2 who opposed the rebuilding of all of this. He was an enemy of this reconstruction campaign. And yet Eliashib, one of the priests, had given Toba uh, Tobiah one of these rooms as an apartment. This room was meant to hold the offerings given to the Levites, and instead, Tobiah is getting a free ride, turning it into a frat house for his own pleasure. And so we see that Nehemiah comes in, and he recognizes that something has displaced true generous worship. And so he, he removes um, Tobiah and, and calls them to give. And so there we see, first of all, he's dealing with the neglect of the Levites uh, that the people had... Um, aired in while he was gone. And then we see a second issue um, that begins in verse 15. And this is where, uh, this is regarding the Sabbath. And sorry, let me rewind. Um, verse 13, or chapter 13, verse 1, defines why these things are so uh, essential for ne Nehemiah and the people. It begins with, on that day, um, they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people. And so they're reading the Pentateuch or at least Deuteronomy. And it's in Deuteronomy where all these laws are given. And if you remember, the people in chapter 11 kind of reaffirm this covenant that they will follow God's law. And so all of these laws are clearly communicated. These laws of providing for these Levites, the laws of Sabbath rule, the laws of marriage, all of those are given in this book, which is being read. And yet you see there's this disunity. They're reading God's word, but they're not following it. And so here Nehemiah comes and they've read, they've heard all of the Sabbath regulations. And yet what's happening is on the Sabbath, um, all of the people who, because remember Jerusalem at this time is no longer um, kind of purely Jewish. It's been co-mingled and is, is really a melting pot of different cultures. And so it's not exclusively ruled by the traditions of in laws of Israel as it was in the days of the king. And so while Jewish people are living there, there's also people from all sorts of different nations. And those people from different nations uh, sell their wares on the Sabbath, right? Not everybody works for Chick-fil-A back then. And uh, so on the Sabbath, on the, the, the day they were to reserve it for rest for God's people, um, these other nations are selling their, their goods and their services, and the people of Israel are participating in that exchange um, and in that commerce, and that is violating the Sabbath law. And so Nehemiah chastises them, and he, he actually um, tells the the city officials to just close the door on Saturday night and don't open it until after sundown on the Sabbath so that these people would stay out and not come into the city. And uh, what happens is these sellers of goods start kind of lining up around the walls of the city. And Nehemiah says, hey, if you stay here, we're going to throw rocks at you. Like, leave. Do not tempt us uh, with what it is you're trying to sell in order to preserve the Sabbath. 
And then the third challenge is one that is corollary to the issue of intermarriage that we saw um, in Ezra being dealt with. And basically what happens is um, the, f the families that had intermarried at some point are now raising kids and those kids are being raised um, without the language of Israel. And to modern readers, that's not really significant, right? We live in a culture where English as a second language is a normal thing um, and doesn't really have a lot of impact. But basically in this day, what that's saying is, is the traditions and the law that were written in the, the language of the Hebrew people, uh, their kids aren't able to hear it. They're not able to understand it. And so uh, the what what is symbolized in this issue of families and language is that even though the people repented of their uh, wrong relationships, they're continuing to raise their family in a relationship structure which does not prioritize the right and true worship of God. It's being watered down with kind of cultural conveniences. And so that's what's at stake with this language stuff. It's kind of odd um, for us. And so he goes ahead and he confronts them and he basically chastises and even beats some of the parents, um, some of the dads for the way that they're raising their kids. And then lastly, in verse 30, um, there's kind of a fourth thing. He just puts some other stuff in order. And after each of these things, he each, each correction, he has this refrain of remember me for any different reason. Remember me, oh God. Remember me, oh God. Remember me, oh God. So that's kind of the summary of what we see in chapter 13. And so in looking up, what does this passage teach us about God, the gospel, Jesus, the Trinity? Um, I think those four reprieves of remember me uh, are really important because here we have Nehemiah who is doing a lot of things, but at the heart of everything he wants to do, uh, he realizes that the sum of his life is meant to be lived for God. And we say, well, that seems more about us than it does about God. But I think if we look at it from the other end, it shows that God himself is worthy of all of our life. Um, it is it is natural that Nehemiah, who has such a burning zeal to restore the worship of God, lives his whole life for God's glory because God deserves it. Why do we do hard things in life? Nehemiah is doing hard things. Nehemiah is leaning into sin. He is moving from this cushy job in Susa and going back to a city that is in disarray. Why? Because he wants to live his life for the glory of God, right? He does not count the comforts of man as a greater blessing than pleasing God. And so for us, um, we need to realize that the God we serve is worthy of all of our life. There's not one area of our life which should be disconnected from a response to who God is. Um, God is a mallet that strikes the heart of believers. Uh, and, and like a symbol, we just reverberate in response to who God is. Uh, we have no sound. We have no purpose. We're not God to strike our hearts for his glory. And so in everything that we do, we ought to have the reprieve. Remember me, oh God. Pleasing God is Nehemiah's chief prayer. And being remembered by him is how he pronounces that. We want to be known by God. And this is where we get the great comfort of the gospel um, because we have Jesus. Hebrew talks about Jesus, our great high priest, our intercessor, who is at the right hand of God. We as Christians, if we have faith in Jesus and what his righteousness does to save us, we know that we will never be forgotten by God, that our lives will always have purpose and will always have meaning because we know that God is uh, has saved us so that we might live for his glory in every space of life. And we know that when we get to heaven, we have the ability to finally hear, well done, good and faithful servant. And so uh, how is it uh, that we might live for God 
because God is worthy of that. And so that's what I get with um, looking up. There's not a lot of direct interaction with God. We see God rules over his people with his law. We see God demands repentance and change. Uh, but just the idea of God as the center of Nehemiah's life communicates how Nehemiah viewed God and the value and worth the rest of scripture gives to him. So that's looking up. Um, looking in, uh, I noticed two things. First, the ease of forgetfulness in three specific areas of life. Um, and those three areas, so uh, in Ezra and in Nehemiah, all these areas are being semi-restored at different times, right? People are offering their offerings to the service of the temple. Um, they are uh, re-articulating the covenant and the importance of the Sabbath. We even saw it inside of Nehemiah itself. They're committing to worship God rightly on the Sabbath. And then we also saw in Ezra and some in Nehemiah. Um, where the relational life of Israel and their intermarriage is being spoken to. And so at times, all these areas, be it their generous worship of God, um, their public and societal observances, being the Sabbath, and also their relationships, being their home, those three areas, generous worship, public and societal places, and their relationships, um, even though they had revival at some points, it was easy and consistent for God's people to actually not practice worship in those three spheres. And uh, I think that's easy for us too, right? It's easy for us to not be generous in our worship of giving to missions or giving to our local churches or uh, offering our time, our, our, our talents, um, the whole of who we are in service of worship because that's what they're doing. People are giving so that worship might increase. Um, and so where is it that we... Uh, often struggle with that. And then also there is, uh, they forget societally, right? They forget to observe the Sabbath um, and they begin selling. It becomes an ordinary day, right? This day that was sacred, that was set apart to God becomes just like any other day. And it's easy for us to view our whole lives as something that is not set apart for God, but is ordinary. It's just like everything else. And also the relationships, right? These people were probably good parents by worldly standards. Um, they are probably doing the best they can, and yet they are neglecting the worship of God in their homes, in raising their kids, and in pursuing their uh, their significant others and their spouses. And so we see we those areas in 21st century America are not too far removed from what we struggle with today. And uh, I think... The, the second thing I see, so we see the ease of forgetfulness in those three areas. And I see kind of the root of this in what I call the danger of concession. And so back in Nehemiah 10, verse 31, uh, the people are reaffirming this covenant. They're convicted of their sin. And they say this regarding the Sabbath. They say, we, uh, uh, and if the peoples of the land bring goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on any holy day. And so here they're saying, there's this conditional statement. If they bring stuff on the Sabbath, we will not buy them. And yet, here in chapter 13, what do we see? They bring things on the Sabbath, and the people love to buy them. And uh, I call this uh, concession because uh, what they basically said is, they can come and we, we can live in this world with them, uh, and we think that we will be bold enough, strong enough, safe enough to say no. And so they're, they're concessing, um, they're making a concession that these things can come in and they will still keep right worship. But what we see is Nehemiah uh, takes that concession and he, he demolishes it. He says, you guys cannot, you are not strong enough um, to 
obey God and his Sabbath rule on your own when these people are in the midst of your town square and they're knocking on your door. And so what does Nehemiah do? He removes those things from the city. He is not willing to, let the, to, to allow the people to be tempted by the proximity of something so dangerous and so sinful. And I think of that when it comes to sin in our own lives, where are we prone um, to make concessions on sin? to where we, um, we understand, yeah, there are certain lines that we cannot cross, but up until we get to that line, we'll be just fine. Um, you know, there are, uh, Missoula is a big drinking town. I think it's easy to say, you know, uh, you know, we can drink up until a certain point, but then at that one point, we need to clearly stop. But the problem is, is that whether it's in dating or whether it's in sex, sexuality or whether it's in drinking or whether it's in um, sports or whether it's whatever it is, when we get to that point, oftentimes we've already conceded and we're already willing to keep going. And so what Nehemiah is modeling here is he's, I think he's really modeling the principle that Jesus himself gives in the Sermon on the Mount where he says, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. It is better for one part of your body to be thrown away than it is for your entire body to burn in hell. We ought to be serious about sin and not seek to barter with it and not make concessions to it, but to put it outside, to remove it from our lives. Um, and there might be times in the future. I would hope that, uh, so say it's an issue of pornography or lust or things like that. It's, it's one thing to just get all of the accountability blockers and completely cut that off. But I would hope that at some point, if you're encountering on Netflix or a movie or, or something or a billboard, something of temptation, that you can withstand that. That there is a level of concession that you can have in life, but that concession comes when you have cut it out first and you have built up the strength of grace to say no to sin. And so that's what I see in looking in. I see how easy it is to forget God in those three areas of life, generous worship, societal and public places and relationship. And I also see how prone we are to make concessions to sin, relying on our own strength, where we're just not strong enough. And we should distance ourselves entirely from those things and put those things outside of the wall. That's one thing my wife and I always talk about um, in dealing with uh, young adults. The question is often, even in pre-marriage engagements, like how close can we get to the line? Um, but the Bible's words is flee from sexual immorality, not find the safe barrier of it. It's run from it. Get as far away from it as you can because uh, we shouldn't make deals with the devil because our hearts are weak and fickle. And so looking out, what does this mean? How does this change stuff? And a lot of this is the application of looking in because looking in wasn't super optimistic for us. <laughs> we basically see the failures of our hearts um, in this text that are still in here thousands of years post Nehemiah. And so the first thing uh, I wanted to point out is just the internal reform of the Holy Spirit. So here Nehemiah comes back, and we all would love to be Nehemiah, uh, but the truth is in our life we're most likely the people of Israel. Um, we're generally not the heroes of Scripture. Uh, we're generally the people in need of a hero. And Nehemiah goes away, and he comes back, and there's reform. And this is a pattern we've seen all throughout the Old Testament, right? Um, the, the judges come and the people repent, the judges go away and they fall into sin. The judges come back and they repent, they go away and they fall into sin. And here we see this cycle continuing and continuing and continuing. Um, but this is where we have the wonderful privilege as new covenant believers of having the internal reform of the Holy Spirit. God has no longer put us in a cycle of needing, um, 
a prophet or a judge to come to convict us of sin because in our redemption, in our salvation, he gives us the Holy Spirit, which exists in us to convict us of sin and remind us of God's grace. Consider John 6, um, where Jesus is talking about the Holy Spirit. He says this, when he, that's the Holy Spirit comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. And also in verse 14, he says, he, that is the Holy Spirit, will glorify me for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. And so here we see this dual role. The Holy Spirit convicts of sin, but the Holy Spirit also reminds of what we ought to do. And so in our own lives, um, you know, we, we have this tendency, specific in Reformed churches, there's this moniker that, you know, we've, we uh, kick the Holy Spirit out of the Trinity because sometimes people get go overboard with the Holy Spirit and it makes us uncomfortable, but we ought not to do that because when we neglect the role of the Holy Spirit in our lives, we neglect the, the wonderful, better Nehemiah who's coming and convicting us of sin and calling us back to obey the law of Moses, things that on our salvation, on our conversion, we say, yes, obedience is always what is best because I see the wages of sin on the cross. And so in our own lives, where is it that we are heeding the Holy Spirit um, where we are praying that the Holy Spirit makes us more aware of the sin in our lives, but also declares to us how we ought to live because of the wonderful transformation that Jesus himself has brought us. And so, and, and the cool thing uh, I noticed in here too is just the displacing effect of the redemption we have. The problem when it came to generous worship um, was not that their rooms were empty, but that an enemy had set up shop in there, right? Tobiah was in there. And actually we see the return of two enemies. Tobiah, the Ammonite was in here. And also Sanballat, the uh, Horonite was in here too. The two enemies who resisted had come and made homes there. And that's often like when things, when, when we have code red issues in our life, we want to get rid of all the enemies, but how easy it is when times are peaceful to begin to fraternize with the enemy once more. But that's why redemption is so great because it, it doesn't, it, uh, what it does is it, displaces false desires. It frees up the capacity for generosity by removing the desires of this world and showing them for what they are. These are enemies. These will never give you what you want. This does not deserve a room in your heart because it cannot fill you like Jesus fills you. And so there's a displacing effect, which is a wonderful thing um, for us to uh, understand as Christians. I can't remember, I should. Um, there's an old Puritan sermon called the displacive power of a newfound affection. Um, I don't know why I can't think of the guy's name right now. Uh, but it's that idea that, yeah, something's in our room and we could go and try to remove Tobiah out of the storehouse of generosity, but ultimately something needs to displace Tobiah. And that is this burning vision of living life for the glory of God as our greatest good. And so we should pray that the Holy Spirit holds up the wonderful nature of Jesus so that we um, are no longer living for uh, worldly pleasures, but we're living out of the overflow of a pleasure we have in Jesus. And because of that, sin becomes more scandalous and sanctification becomes more special. Uh, and, and so in light of that, in light of knowing how conversion works, I just have three questions for us that kind of get at those three spheres um, of of worship, uh, generous worship, public and societal places, and relationships. And so when it comes to practically, live, practically living this out, just three questions in closing, is what and where do we give our money? What is it that it's going towards? God has called us to be generous. Um, God has called us to fund the furtherance of worship. And that includes on a basic level, um, generosity towards local churches, 
but on a broader level, that includes generosity towards missionaries and church planners and, and Christian um, uh, social good organizations, all these things that are helping to increase worship in our world. And especially in this COVID-19 time, uh, I think it's important for us to remember uh, so, so we as a church, God's been very gracious and we haven't seen a huge giving drop in this. And we know it's difficult for people financially, um, but I think of all of the, the missionaries and even we have GCF support staff who are raising funds in this and it's a difficult time. And so we need to be mindful of, of how is it that we can continue to free up God's laborers to labor in a unique and specific way alongside of our own labor with our finances. Secondly, um, what do we, so there's this duality here because there is, um, they're not giving to the temple for worship, but they are giving to these other vendors for their own joy, right? That's what's happening on the Sabbath. They're not giving to God for worship, but what they are doing is they are giving to the world for their own comfort. And so the other question I have in these public and societal places is what are we abstaining from because of the joy of the gospel? Right, the Sabbath was meant to be this day of rest for the people, um, and yet here, the there seems to be some sort of lie of consumerism that's in their heart that's saying, you, you, why, why, why would you rest when you could have this? When this is here, if you had this, you can rest better. If you had this, you would have the greater peace. Um, but when we realize that the God of the world has satisfied all of our needs in Jesus Christ, we can actually rest from all of the vices the world peddles to us, promising satisfaction. And so in the public and societal places are our lives noticeably different because we have the eternal Sabbath rest of Jesus. We do not need the wares and goods of this world in the way the world does. We ought to be able to abstain from certain things not because we are Stoics, not because we practice some sort of raw asceticism, but because we are satisfied. Someone better than Tobiah has filled the room of our heart and we are filled with joy. And so uh, this can look like abstaining from kind of those, what's on the other side of that line and what leads up to it. It could look like abstaining from specific sins, abstaining from specific cultural things that um, people participate in as a substitute savior and instead we get to express a unique witness in that space that we don't need your goods but you need our good you need our jesus and then lastly where's where does this show up in our relationships and I, I want to kind of juke it a little bit and just talk about as christians we ought to have a language of grace uh, right there's this language that is lost in nehemiah 13 that is causing them to lose the redemptive work of Jesus, of, of God in the history of Israel. And in our relationships with our neighbors, in our relationships with our potential spouses or uh, boyfriends or girlfriends or children, um, where does the language of grace show up? Are we so used to talking and communicating to people uh, based off of the world's standards for what is good and what satisfies? Or are we committed to an everything, pulling God's grace and the centrality of the gospel and the good news of Jesus into our conversations? Are, are, is our language distinct when we're talking to those who are around us? So that was a lot today. I went a little longer, um, but it was good to be in Nehemiah with you guys. Let me pray for us. And then we will let you get on with your week. Dear Lord Jesus, I thank you so much uh, for the examining effects uh, you have in our hearts through a book like Nehemiah. 
Lord, I think of my own lives where generosity, where public observances and where my relationships need to be supplemented. And Lord, in all those things, as we make efforts, we say, as Nehemiah did, remember me, O God. Um, remember me because of your love. Remember me because of your grace. Remember me, O my God, concerning this. And do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of God and for his service. So Lord, we thank you that Jesus has answered those prayers for us, that we are not alone in our efforts of resisting sin, and that Christ has drawn us to your mind daily as our good Savior. Pray that that satisfies us, that the pleasure of God and the friendship of Jesus changes our lives in ways that are seen in our world. Lord, as the new people of God in the church, we pray that we reflect your glory in a way that is unique and wonderful because we have seen the true and better temple, the greater wall which protects our people, and that is the wall of Jesus' righteousness. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. See you guys later. I will see most of you, not for a couple weeks, because I get a little bit of a vacation. But until then, uh, have a good time, and we will see you when we see you.